The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody, and a good morning to Squawk Box, where we have special coverage of the German federal elections. I'm Jeff Cutmore. Outside the Reichstag, we have Annette Weisbach at the iconic Brandenburg Gate. And, of course, Steve holding it all together back in our headquarters in London. So let's get into our headlines this hour. We've had the final television debate here in Germany before they go to the polls. The polls now appear to be narrowing with just a couple of points between the SPD and the CDU and familiar issues yet again in the television debate. They talked about tax, they clashed over debt and there was a big focus on foreign policy. It's up to us to ensure that Europe can speak with one voice. I want to form a national security council that combines all our intelligence and strengthens our foreign policy. I want to make sure that we create a united European approach toward China in which one EU country doesn't get played off against the other. ECB President Christine Lagarde tells CNBC exclusively that 16 years of leadership of Angela Merkel here in Germany leave the country stronger on the international stage while warning election uncertainty always uh, drive fears. Once the election is over and you have more certainty about the outcome, pending coalition discussion, then it's, 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 a, it's a better situation than before, because then you have the answer. Meanwhile on the markets, Wall Street really rallies, with the Dow and the S&P 500 posting their best day since July, as the major indices push into positive territory for the week. However, investors are waiting in limbo as a key deadline passes for foreign bondholders of troubled Chinese property giant Evergrande. But the indebted developer enters a 30-day payment grace period. And as Germany prepares to bid farewell to its longest-serving leader and Europe's longest-serving leader, there'll be a big focus on legacy and ultimately what Angela Merkel's 16 years meant for Germany and meant for Europe. Uh, and what about the new government? Well, the way it looks at the moment, it could be months. Not weeks, but months before we see a new coalition government formed here in Germany, which means Angela Merkel will be in charge probably for several months into 2022. Right, well, as Jeff was saying, uh, welcome to our very special coverage of the German federal election. We are live in Berlin throughout the morning with insights and analysis ahead of Sunday's vote. So Germany's chancellor candidates took to the stage last night in their final TV debate ahead of Sunday's election. The aspiring successors to Angela Merkel diverged, as you would expect, on debt rules climate targets, and as we were hearing in the headlines, foreign policy as well, suggesting coalition talks 
could well be tricky. Now, on foreign policy, the candidates stress the need for a stronger, more unified EU. We've been hearing a lot of that recently, haven't we? Many, many quarters inside and outside of Germany. This is the bloc tries to assert itself more on the global stage. Laschet argued the EU's experience in the withdrawal from Afghanistan should come as a warning. Europe is looking at Germany and what government will be formed, because Germany is always an important country in Europe, which will, with its economic strength, keep Europe together. And at the same time, it's a political power to which many look to. That's why I think we need a more sovereign and stronger Europe, especially in foreign and defence affairs. We've seen in Afghanistan that when the Americans left, we weren't even able to secure Kabul airport. That's why I want to form a National Security Council that combines all our intelligence and strengthens our foreign policy. Secondly, we need more Europe. We need to speak with one voice. We need to start projects together, also arms projects to be able to act together when the USA steps back. Well, as you've already seen, we've got Annette at the Brandenburg Gate, but we've got Jeff outside the Reichstag building. And uh, Jeff, of course, uh, as is the norm, I've checked the weather and you're OK. You're about 15, 16 degrees today as well, so you should stay dry. I won't do, be doing my rain dance because you're out there for a long time. But just talk us through some of the key points we should be looking at over the next couple of days. Good morning to you, my friend. Yeah, very good morning to you, Steve, and um, a good morning to Annette, who is not that far away, but just a little too far for me to uh, shout and be heard. But let's uh, refocus then on some of the key points here. So uh, we've had the final television debate here. The issues are pretty much a rerun of the issues that we've heard over and over again. How does Germany increase the amount it pumps into public investment and infrastructure? Over Angela Merkel's 16 years, this is one issue, I think, that has perhaps been seen as something of a failure, while by and large, uh, you find very favourable commentary on Angela Merkel here in Germany, and her approval rating remains very strong. There are frustrations, I think, about public infrastructure, and in particular, things like uh, the very slow rollout of high-speed internet. So that's going to be a big focus. And of course, uh, when we saw the last election in 2017, uh, migration and immigration was a very hot button issue. And we got that strong polling for the AFD that took a very principled stance as far as they saw it on migration numbers. It doesn't really figure this time round in a lot of the hustings. Um, it is still there, of course, as a, an issue that matters to Germans. But we've seen investment and we've seen uh, the uh, COVID uh, uh, pandemic and the way it was managed here by the health ministry and uh, the uh, green agenda very much as the issues that have come to the fore here. But let me just take a moment maybe to explain to our audience tuning in how exactly the polling will go down on Sunday. So here's some details for you. Uh, the timeline, ultimately, the polls will open at 8 o'clock Central European time on Sunday. Votes cast for around 10 hours, mid-afternoon at around 330 we should get a provisional statement on voter turnout and on uh, the party's as they start to gather at their respective headquarters. Uh, first exit polls uh, should come in soon after 
the uh, 6 p.m. Uh, local time close when voting finishes. Uh, in previous elections, we had a, a good idea of what the final result might look like by about 10.30 p.m. Assuming there is no clear winner, coalition talks will begin almost immediately, uh, lasting days, weeks or, uh, as expected, probably months here. Just a reminder, in 2017, it took nearly six months for a government to be formed. Now, according to the final projections, Olaf Scholz's uh, SPD is leading, but the CDU-CSU alliance has gained on the front runners in recent days, narrowing the gap to just two percentage points in uh, some of the polls. The tight race may result in Germany's first ever three-party coalition. Analysts are talking about a partnership of the CDU-CSU or SPD with the Greens and the Liberal FDP. So either a so-called Jamaica or a so-called traffic-like coalition as the most likely outcome, but a red-red-green option or red-green-red, depending on how you want to say it, uh, option has not been ruled out at this point. Now, coming back to the EU, one of the other areas I think that there is some uh, dissent over is whether Angela Merkel has presided over a stronger or a weaker EU. There will be those, of course, who say that she could have picked up the phone to David Cameron and offered some olive branches at that critical time around the Brexit vote. Uh, and there are those who feel that she could have done more than to prevent Brexit happening. Because, of course, Brexit uh, was a very significant blow for the whole EU integration project. And the issue of the EU, of course, is something that Olaf Scholz has had to weigh in on. The anger felt by the French government over the new military deal Australia agreed with the US and UK for nuclear armed submarines is something we can sympathise, as well as the whole German government. We want to forge a strong, sovereign Europe. In my view, that's the most important duty we have as Germans. We're the biggest country of the centre of Europe, with the biggest population and the biggest economy. So it's up to us to ensure that Europe can speak with one voice. Yeah, interesting. And and that's one of the challenges, I think, for the German electorate as they place their vote and they try and uh, take a decision here, because there is so much uh, that is similar about the views that the candidates are expressing. Annalena Baerbock for the Greens also pointing out that uh, uh, the EU needs to be strong. It needs to be secure and ultimately agreeing on uh, a lot of those points, I think, that were being made by Olaf Scholz. At the beginning of the year, a new U.S. administration was voted in, which finally gave a new start for democracy worldwide. What was the first reaction from the government? The Grand Coalition? To start an investment program with China, which was also a slap in the face of our European partners, because it was not decided together in Europe. I want to make sure that we create a united European approach toward China in which one EU country doesn't get played off against the other, so that we can make clear in this competition of two different systems that we have our own strategic sovereignty. That means to start a new chapter in the European foreign and human rights policy. 
But as we've uh, often talked about, Steve, um, if Germany is going to participate in a more robust, uh, in Olaf Scholz's term, a more uh, European defence orientated uh, uh, military, then uh, we do need to see uh, German defence spending lifted, I guess. And there's, that's been the constant uh, complaint of the Americans that uh, German defence spending still sits some way below that 2% NATO figure. Um, the other issue, of course, around this increase in uh, public investment is ultimately how that can be achieved, given Annette, and you'll have a better line in on this than I do, that uh, currently uh, federal law dictates uh, a limit on fiscal deficits that the government can run. I think 0.35% is the number here. So either there has to be a change in the law or there has to be some uh, clever new budgetary mechanism for skirting these restrictions on lifting um, uh, fiscal deficits and loosening fiscal policy. Yeah, that's exactly the case. And I think that debate needs to start right after the general elections. And there are also parties who would think about lifting that debt break, which we have constitutionally enshrined. But given all the challenges the German economy is facing and also the investment need, they, they have to do something about it or they have to uh, create special purpose vehicles uh, for uh, financing those uh, dedicated areas. And I guess everybody who is most likely in the next government, especially the Greens, they want to have a lot more state spending. They want to have the state being, play, playing a much bigger role. And interestingly, the debate is also framed in the domestic debate where uh, like a vote between a market-friendly next government, meaning a conservative, conservative liberal next government with some sort of engagement of the Greens, or a government which actually thinks the other way around, that the state should play a much bigger role and that we should have much more regulation. Annalena Baerbock was famously quoted as saying that uh, actually if you prohibit things, that would trigger innovation. That obviously created an uproar in the liberal camp. So that just gives you an idea how fierce that debate and how general that debate is also um, now being laid out here in, in the public because clearly this vote will be not just about finding a successor of Angela Merkel. This vote could also mean which direction will Germany go to? Will it be a Germany which moves uh, to the left quite dramatically with a completely different focus how we should run our country or will that vote be a vote pro liberal ideas, pro-market open economy and not that much state intervention. But I bring, <laughs> let me bring uh, me back to the point you were raising. It, it, in any case, it will mean much more debt, much more government spending, given that we need so much more investment into infrastructure. Jeff? Well, Annette, I'll pick up there. Just uh, absolutely fascinating listening to both of you in Berlin. And you know what? I, I'm going to take it just a slight different tack and just draw on what everything you've all just said, because I can't help thinking whether it's a left leaning or a right leaning government. The pressures are there. The pressures are there on multiple fronts. 
for Germany to be more proactive on foreign policy, as you've both alluded to as well, regardless who wins. There are European voices, and I've spoken to many of them myself, and we've all spoken to them, who are calling for more European foreign policy integration, more progression on a European army and defence force of some description. So Germany will have to come out of its comfort zone of a defensive posture and actually perhaps be more aggressive on the world stage, something it is very loath to do. On the fiscal front as well, it's going to have to accept that actually um, the, the, the fiscal rules which it's lived by are going to have to change going forward because the rest of Europe, and Gentiloni is waiting uh, for this election to come and go before he starts talking to the nations about accepting more debt to GDP, about less stringent fiscal rules as part of the growth and stability pact as well. Uh, and of course, the attitude to union as well, to more federalism, to more integration. Uh, and that, of course, comes with it, uh, with more integration in the banking sector as well. How Germany wants to do this, whether it's a left-leaning or right-leaning government, is absolutely key. And of course, it's thorny relationship between the Bundesbank and the ECB will also potentially come into focus going forward. With that in mind, my goodness me, we've had an interview for you. The ECB president, Christine Lagarde, has told CNBC, she actually told Annetta, uh, that she welcomes the certainty that will come after this weekend's election. Annetta has plenty more from this exclusive interview, which she conducted only yesterday with the central bank chief. And, and, and I, I listen always to what from, um, to, I beg pardon, Madame Lagarde has to say. I've known the lady for many, many years when she was a French finance minister as well, before she moved up to elevated status as well elsewhere with other key roles globally. And I have to say, I don't know if she's right. I don't know, Annetta, whether stability will come on the back of this election. Good morning again to you. And uh, just tell us a bit more about your interview. Of course, Steve, what she was actually saying that whenever we have like a, a, a good democracy and that is the case here in Germany, that um, after election, it takes a little bit of time, but then there will be a new, uh, a new balance and a new sort of set of power. But of course, Angela Merkel, 16 years uh, of Angela Merkel leaves, uh, use, uh, leaves some sort of a vacuum and especially on the international stage, because that is where Angela Merkel really was successful and, and also um, will be much missed. I guess this is this is the lesson we have learned when talking to a lot of leaders across the globe that she has been playing such an important role to keeping it all together. Of course, Brexit is an is an exemption here, but the the debt crisis and all the other crises she has been presiding over, um, literally every four years um, of her government has faced another crisis, be it the financial crisis, the debt crisis, um, the rest refugee crisis, not, forget, not to forget that crisis. And then, of course, came the corona crisis now in her last four years. But well, when I caught up with um, Christine Lagarde, because she has had a lot of moments with Angela Merkel, I had to ask her what I mean, what her like sort of memories were and what she thinks uh, whether Angela Merkel will leave a vacuum on uh, the political scene here in Germany. Take a listen. Well, I will take this opportunity to salute the 16 years that are being completed and, and, uh, and pay tribute to Chancellor Merkel, uh, who has done so much uh, on the international scene in particular, uh, representing uh, Germany. You know, any uncertainty uh, is, is always propitious to movements and anticipation and fear. So I would say that once the election is over, and you have more certainty about the outcome, 
pending coalition discussion, then it's a better situation than before, because then you have the uncertainty. Who is it going to be? What kind of coalition will it be? Which president uh, will will uh, be elected in France? I think that once the election is over, then everybody, you know, knows what to expect and and prepares for that. So it's it's a it it reduces uncertainty actually. Perhaps we are terminating the interview with a look back to perhaps a common experience with Angela Merkel as you were saluting her for 16 years and her role as an international um, diplomat. If you look back, what kind of yeah, memories do you have and perhaps the most important uh, meeting or, uh, or memory you have from working together with her? Dozens of G7, G20 uh But I think the the the, the one that I, I will cherish is this time when the two of us went to the to the concert hall together, just very privately. She had one security officer, I had one. Uh, we went together in the same car, and uh, people were so um, respectful and and discreet about her in Berlin uh, going to the to the concert. Uh, that was a lovely moment. So those two really had a, a very good personal relationship as well. But of course, on a different level, what the ECB is doing uh, to put more and more money into the system faces a lot of criticism here in Germany with inflation running really hot. So the topic of tapering is almost every every day on uh, the front page of the newspapers and also the topic of inflation. So when the ECB met last time and we had the press conference, uh, she was saying that this is not tapering. So I had to ask Christine Lagarde uh, what it, it is actually what they are doing because they're reducing stimulus. So it should be named tapering. So take a listen. I said the lady is not for tapering. Exactly. <laughs> and the lady is for calibrating because th this has been our policy. Uh, our monetary policy is intended to procure favorable financing conditions. Why is that? Because we want to support the economic players, whether it's households, whether it's enterprises, large corporates, uh, sovereigns, all of them need to have favorable financing conditions to cross that bridge towards the post-pandemic uh, stage. And to make sure that there are favorable financing conditions, we look at the whole chain of financing And we look at inflation outlook and we determine how much monetary support is needed. And that helps us calibrate uh, the purchases that we believe are necessary, which is why we calibrated and decided uh, to uh, purchase moderately uh, in the coming quarter. You said you were planning on purchasing moderately. What does it mean in numbers? Does it mean 60, 70, or is there more flexibility to it? There is flexibility to the, the pandemic emergency program. That is the uh, one of the landmark of, of the PEP, as we call it, uh, pandemic emergency purchase program, because we want to adjust. We want to have the ability to, um, you know, really operate as close to variations as possible to make sure that financing conditions remain favorable. So it works both ways. If we see that less purchases will still procure those favorable financing conditions, we will purchase less. If we see that more is needed, we will add to the, uh, the purchases. 
It's a great interview, um, and there's plenty in there about Evergrande as well, um, because you can head to cnbc.com to hear more about Annette's interview with the ECB president, including Madame Lagarde's thoughts on the Evergrande crisis and energy pressure. So I'll give you a little bit of a sneak preview on it as well. She says that there's no or limited direct exposure to Evergrande, but I think it's absolutely telling that in the interview, she says we're looking at it. We're monitoring it. And I had a briefing earlier today because I think all financial markets are interconnected. So isn't that interesting that over at the ECB, they're having um, briefings about Evergrande just in case, just in case there's something big going on. And I can tell you now, I have two lines of news on my screen. One of them is always on the latest alerts, double A. And the other is set to Evergrande at the moment. And at the moment, we're hearing absolutely nothing uh, about the payment of those international interest payments due. So I guess we're in the 30-day grace period now. That seems to be where we are. But we'll do a little bit more work on this one because coming up on the show, Evergrande's international bondholders, they remain in limbo with no sign of a resolution on its interest payments as a key deadline passes. We'll have some more on this after the break. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. A quick break from our election coverage. Amazing week, really. The crisis at the start of the week was about Evergrande and concern about some form of default and not paying bondholders. And yet we've got to the end of the week. You'll like this. This is absolutely the bonkers markets we live in. We've got to the end of the week. And Sam's coming up in a minute. She's getting herself ready. I can see her now. Um, <laughs> there she is. No, no, the truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, these markets have recovered. Yes, she's waving away at me as well. If only you could see. They've, they've recovered, not only poised, but they're actually now bordering on up on the week despite the fact that Evergrande hasn't paid the international bondholders as far as we're concerned. The, the coupon is absolutely extraordinary. So the crisis that started off the sell-off is still clear and present. And we, and we heard there that Madame Lagarde's having a look at it as well. Everyone's having a look at it as well. And yet the markets have rallied gangbusters. Look at this. Look, this is what I'm trying to show you. The Dow's up 500 points in the previous session. The S&P's up 1.2%. The Nasdaq's up a percent. For the week, we are up on the Dow. We are up on the S&P. We are flat on the Nasdaq. And yet the great concern about defaults at the largest property company on the planet in the sector that is arguably more important for the Chinese than any other sector is still a live situation. Isn't that extraordinary? Okay, all right, let's have a look at Dow session. I'll just show you. I mean, it just went up. It abated somewhat from its highs. But look at that. Absolutely rocket fuel in this market. Rocket fuel, I should say, in the energy markets as well. Oil has just gone through the roof and the energy stocks uh, have gone back. We've got a 77 handle on Brent now. 77 handle. What's that going to do for your central bank inflation watch, eh? Well, I can tell you. The, uh, the Bank of England's talking about 4% handle now before it abates. Is it going to abate? Well, I'll tell you one thing. In the UK, they were talking about petrol stations. Oh, it's only a handful. It's only a handful. Well, me and producer John, both coming from the same part of the world this morning, I passed three or four petrol stations before I found any this morning. It's not just one or two. US markets this week. This is what I want to show you. This is what I want to show you very quickly. 
Week today up across the board, flat on the Nasdaq as well. I mean, it really has been a meteoric recovery. Do you want to have a look at the Asian markets? It's been holidays galore and well-earned holidays in various parts of the world, but safe to say. But again, look at the reaction. Evergrande has not paid its international bondholders yet. I'll come to the read in a second. We're just down a third of a percent. Nothing. Hang Seng, flat as a pancake. Nikkei is responding to what we saw in the States, 2% higher. On the data front, jobless claims, they weren't brilliant, but they, they, were, they were very interesting uh, piece of data. The, the, the rolling average over multiple weeks still looks remarkably low compared to where we were at the height of the crisis. Right, let's get to Evergrande because Sam's just waiting there, waving at me, waiting. She's saying, come on, come to me. Get, I want to go home. Right, Evergrande's international bondholders remain in limbo after a key debt deadline. It just came and went. Again, I've got to open my screen. Sam's got to open the screen. It's not there. It's not happening. The indebted developer resolved a coupon payment on its domestic bond early in the week, but it said nothing about the remaining offshore payments. Well, I, I've, I've, I've teased her long enough, and here she is going to tell us some real detail about what's going on everywhere. Lovely to see you, Sam. Yeah, you as well, Stephen. It was interesting what you were saying about the markets, really, because we're seeing a fairly muted session over on the mainland Chinese markets today. Uh, really, uh, as uh, we have got a number of developments this week, as the investors have been breathing a sigh of relief, you could say. We got uh, Evergrande coming out with some reassuring comments, particularly from that chairman. Uh, we also talk, heard it talking about uh, resolving one of those domestic bond interest repayments just yesterday. We've also had quite a few analysts sort of downplaying the systemic risk risk uh, of all of this in the global economy, uh, the risk of a potential default over at Evergrande. But uh, still, of course, investors are waiting for some clarity uh, on all of this. And I can tell you what, Steve, I've also got Evergrande uh, sitting up on my screen waiting for those alerts and still no word from the company uh, about this uh, dollar bond interest payment that was, as you say, due yesterday. So that deadline has now come and gone, leaving a lot of these bondholders in the dark. Some are apparently running out of hope of ever getting that payment. There has been some suggestion uh, that perhaps we may expect to get some clarity, uh, certainly from Evergrande in the next month, because you've got to remember there is that 30-day uh, grace period in which Evergrande needs to sort this out and get this deal done in order to avoid a default. Now, just a bit of a recap on all of this. Of course, Evergrande was due to pay uh, $83.5 million worth of interest on a bond that is due in March, but it is facing another $47.5 million that's due next week on a bond that's mature in 2024. Now, in the absence of any sort of official commentary, you could say, uh, we have seen uh, Chinese regulators uh, reportedly actually telling Evergrande to try to avoid a bond default here and communicate with these bondholders because clearly everybody is waiting for some clarity at the moment. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.